there. I'm your friend Bev, host of Stop Psychoanalyzing Me, a podcast about mental health. I interview experts and ask questions about mental disorders that all of us might be curious about. Come join me. On today's show is Dr. Martin M. Antony. Dr. Antony is a professor in the Department of Psychology at the soon-to-be-renamed Ryerson University in Toronto, Ontario, and he's the Provincial Clinical and Training Lead for the Ontario Structured Psychotherapy Program. He is a Fellow of the Royal Society of Canada and a past President of the Canadian Psychological Association and the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies. He has published 33 books and over 300 scientific articles and chapters in areas related to cognitive behavior therapy and anxiety-related disorders. All right, Dr. Anthony, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here. So I'm going to start today jumping right in. So as we can tell by the title of this episode, today we'll be talking about social anxiety disorder. And when I asked folks on Instagram to let me know what their questions were, a lot of folks were wondering, what exactly is an anxiety disorder and how do you distinguish an anxiety disorder just from the experience of anxiety? Yeah, well, I'm going to answer that question a little bit backwards. I'm going to start off with definitions of of terms like anxiety and fear um, and, and even social anxiety uh, before I get into the, the disorder piece. Um, so uh, anxiety is basically, anxiety and fear are two different things. So we, we often use these terms interchangeably, but they're two different states, two different emotional states. Uh, anxiety is a future-oriented um, anticipation of possible danger or misfortune um, where people are uh, distressed, they're worried, they may have some physical sensations, and, and the focus is on some sort of anticipated future danger. So if we're worrying about a presentation that's coming up a few days from now, um, that would be anxiety that we're experiencing, that, that emotion. Um, fear, on the other hand, is more of an uh, all-or-nothing kind of uh, emotional fight or flight response to some sort of immediate threat or danger. So fear is the experience that people have when they um, maybe a bear is chasing them or they're about to get into a car accident or something like that. And fear is designed to get people out of the situation quickly um, or to meet some threat head on. So that's the with an aggressive response possibly. So that's a fight or flight response. Um, that, that I was talking about. So, so basically with um, uh, people who experience anxiety disorders often experience both fear and anxiety. Um, these are normal emotions. We all experience fear and anxiety. So what's the difference between fear and anxiety and uh, an anxiety disorder? Um, well, the main thing is the intensity, the frequency, and most importantly, the extent to which the fear and anxiety are interfering with somebody's life or it's distressing to them in some ways. Uh, it bothers them that they experience uh, fear or anxiety in a situation. So just as an example, if somebody's terrified of snakes, 
but it doesn't interfere with their life at all. It doesn't bother them that they fear snakes. We wouldn't call that uh, an anxiety disorder. Uh, on the other hand, if somebody was terrified of snakes and it was coming up pretty often in their life, maybe they lived somewhere where they saw snakes and they couldn't leave their home easily. Uh, we might call that a snake phobia or a specific phobia of snakes, which is an anxiety disorder. So um, that's, I think, the best way to think about it is what does this problem interfere with my life? Does it um, uh, does it um, get in the way of things that I want to do? Does it interfere with my work, with my relationships? Does it bother me that I have this fear or anxiety? Just to reiterate what you were saying, everyone experiences fear and anxiety at some point in their lives. But when it's really distressing, it's interfering, maybe it's stopping you from doing the things that you would actually really like to do, that might be when it's a disorder. Yes. I think that's a good a good summary. So you mentioned specific phobia. So for example, a snake phobia. And today we're talking about something very different, social anxiety disorder. Um, though... Could someone have a phobia of people? Is that what social anxiety disorder is? Yes. So um, just as uh, you know, I talked about the differences between anxiety and fear versus an anxiety disorder, um, we can talk about the differences between social anxiety and social anxiety disorder. So most of us experience social anxiety. Uh, that just refers to anxiety in a social situation. It could be being on a date or giving a presentation, um, being evaluated in some way, um, performing, all of these are social situations. Um, social anxiety disorder is a problem where people have social anxiety uh, at a level that is interfering with their lives or it's bothering them that they have that social anxiety. You ask whether people can have a phobia of people. Social anxiety disorder used to be called social phobia. Um, that's exactly what it is. It's a fear of being evaluated by other people. Um, we often think about uh, a couple of different social situations that people are afraid of, uh, different types. Um, so one is uh, performance situations, situations that involve being the center of attention, uh, situations where you might be observed by others. Um, so for example, common ones are public speaking, uh, performing music in front of others, uh, working out in the gym with people watching, uh, eating or drinking in front of others, um, using public uh, restrooms, crowded places, because people might be watching you writing in front of others. That's often a fear of having shaky hands in front of others. So all of those are examples of situations that people with social anxiety disorder may avoid. Those are performance situations. The other type of situation that people with social anxiety disorder may fear and avoid are what we call interpersonal situations. And these are situations that involve uh, interacting with others, things like conversations, um, uh, meeting new people, dating, speaking with authority figures, parties, meetings, interviews, um, being assertive, saying no if you don't want to do something. Um, so those are all important examples as well. Um, so social anxiety disorder can include an extreme fear of one or more performance situations, one or more interpersonal situations, uh, or a combination of both performance and interpersonal situations. Oh, wow. So it actually sounds like there are two types of social anxiety disorder. Is that right? Um, these aren't really types of social anxiety disorder. Um, what they are is um, examples of situations 
that people with social anxiety disorder fear and avoid that I've organized into these two categories, but, um, but these are not official categories or types or anything like that. Um, uh, what is a specific type in, in the official kind of diagnostic criteria is something called um, uh, a performance type, which um, is basically uh, for people who are generally afraid of just public speaking. So um, if somebody is just afraid of public speaking, then we would usually, um, uh, the treatment might look a little bit different uh, if it's just narrowly focused. And uh, a lot of people, though, have more generalized kind of social anxiety across a range of performance situations and across uh, a, a range of interpersonal situations as well. Okay, so it sounds like some people might be diagnosed with this performance-specific type of social anxiety disorder, but you're saying that most people with the disorder have social anxiety in a broad range of social situations. Yes, and and in in, uh, the the diagnostic criteria, the way performance is used, it's used a little bit differently than the way I was using it a few minutes ago. So I was talking about any situations where people might be observed um, in in the diagnostic criteria. Really, the performance type really refers to a more narrowly focused um, public speaking fear, typically. All right. Well, I'm learning so much already. And I know, Dr. Anthony, that you um, wrote a book on shyness and social anxiety. Is shyness the same thing as social anxiety or are these different things? I would say shyness is associated with social anxiety, specifically in interpersonal situations. So if somebody is afraid of public speaking, they may not be shy at all. They may be very extroverted and outgoing, but they're just terrified of public speaking. So um, on the other hand, people who are shy tend to be more afraid of the interpersonal situations, uh, conversations, dating people, those sorts of things. And it it overlaps with introversion as well. Somebody who's more introverted and, and tends to prefer less social contact, maybe also more socially anxious, not necessarily, but maybe, um, maybe more shy, not necessarily, but maybe. Um, and extreme shyness can very much look like social anxiety disorder. If somebody's fearing and avoiding a lot of situations because of extreme shyness um, and, and it's interfering with their lives, then that might be social anxiety disorder. Now, about 70% of us describe ourselves as shy in certain situations or at certain times in our lives. Um, so that's not, you know, for most of us, that's not social anxiety disorder. But for the top end of that, maybe 8% of people, um, that can be social anxiety disorder. If your shyness is stopping you from getting into relationships or applying for jobs, um, then, then it may be social anxiety disorder, for example. Okay. I had no idea that 70% of people might self-identify as shy in certain situations. That's so interesting and makes a lot of sense. Including a lot of performers, you know, people like, uh, um, people who you wouldn't think of as shy, um, uh, uh, Howard Stern, for example, describes himself as very shy. Um, uh, your uh, older viewers will remember Johnny Carson, who used to host the Tonight Show, described himself as very, as very shy. There's a number of uh, well-known celebrities who are more introverted and shy, but they're very comfortable performing. Um, so 
uh, it, it's more the interpersonal one-on-one contact that's harder. You know, when I think about shyness, I often think about children. And I know for myself, I was a very shy child. I have a lot of friends who probably would identify with being shy as children, but not necessarily socially anxious later in life. And it, it made me wonder about social anxiety throughout development. And I guess I'm wondering, can social anxiety change throughout development? Or is social anxiety almost like a fixed trait or a fixed problem that people tend to have? Yeah. So people's genetic makeup, their temperament, which they're uh, born with, uh, to some extent determines who they are and how they act and how they feel in situations going forward. Um, but there's, there's within a range. Um, so there are things that we can do to, um, you know, most people who, who begin very introverted in life don't turn into these kind of extroverted kind of people. There's, there's some introversion that, that continues through life, but, um, but they may become more extroverted than they were, were than when they were young. So, uh, we'll talk about treatment of social anxiety, but, um, you know, if people, uh, have experiences with social situations that teach them that the things they're afraid will happen don't happen. Um, then they may be less socially anxious in these situations. So just through natural kind of exposure to social situations, people may find that they get easier over time and that they're less shy or less anxious uh, over time than they were before. Um, So, for example, when I first was uh, um, starting to work in the area of anxiety before I even started in graduate school, I remember my first presentation, I was really, really anxious. I remember dry mouth and, and all kinds of different symptoms. Um, I've given tons of presentations since then, and it's just become more second nature. Um, but even now, if I'm giving a presentation that's a little bit different than the kinds that I normally give, so for example, uh, if I have to give a speech at a wedding or something, you know, I can talk about anxiety and have no anxiety uh, doing that. But if I have to give a, uh, a more personal kind of speech at a wedding or a toast or something, that would make me anxious. So um, but anyway, that's just an example of how it can change over time, just through experience. If you're kind of forced to do something or you make a decision to do something over and over again, it, it does get easier. It sounds like what you're saying is kids who are socially anxious aren't necessarily going to be socially anxious when they're older um, because they might learn over time that their feared outcome might not necessarily happen. So they might not necessarily be bullied if they share something vulnerable, for example, or they might actually complete a presentation with flying colors and no one noticed them shaking. Yeah. Or they might, um, yeah, they might have lots of support. We know that social support can, can um, buffer people against the effects of stressful life events. Um, So yeah, people's experiences can certainly have um, uh, an impact on, on, on that. Um, the other thing I'd say though, is people can start off not particularly socially anxious, but develop social anxiety later as well. So if people experience a lot of teasing or bullying in high school, they might find that they develop more social anxiety, even though as children, they were very confident. Um, or that if they struggle in university and have to drop out and they lose some confidence around that and they're having trouble finding a job and they, they might find that they also become more anxious around other people because what are people going to think about me? Um, so it's not unusual for social anxiety to begin later as well. And it's also not unusual for it to be a component of other problems 
So I might have depression and that might trigger social anxiety because, because I'm, I'm worried about what other people will think of, of my depression and, and how that's affected my life. Um, or I might have another anxiety problem um, and I might worry how people will judge that anxiety problem, which triggers social anxiety. I don't want to be around people because they're going to notice my avoidance behaviors or you know, related to my driving fear, uh, for example. One of the questions I had for you, though I think you kind of answered it, is does social anxiety wax and wane throughout the lifespan or is it fairly consistent? And it sounds like you're saying someone might be diagnosed with social anxiety disorder at different times in their life based on different circumstances, based on different mental health problems they might be dealing with. And they might only be diagnosed with social anxiety disorder for a, a relatively short period of time in their life. Yes, yes, and no. So, um, social anxiety disorder is a chronic problem. Um, so it's not like major depressive disorder, which can be episodic, where you have two months where you're depressed and then you're fine, and then a couple of years later you have a month where you're depressed and then you're fine for a while, and then. Years later, you have six months where you're depressed. It's not. It's not like that. Um, it's a chronic problem, um, but it does wax and wane. So that for for a lot of people, not for everybody. For some people, it just stays the same all the time. Um, for other people, it once it develops, it kind of stays there. But they have a period where it's not that bad, and then it kind of develops. Um, for other people, they have periods in their life where it's worse and, and better, but it never quite goes away. Um, so I would think of it as sort of like you know, other chronic problems, chronic back problems and, and, and headaches and, and things like that, that um, for some people it, it gets better over time for other people, it doesn't. And, and for, for some people, it just kind of had they have good periods and, and worse periods, but it's not, um, yeah, it's not episodic. It's more chronic. Is there an age range then where most people are diagnosed with social anxiety disorder? Well, most people who have it are never diagnosed with social anxiety disorder um, because they, they, they may not seek help or they may not seek help from someone who can make a diagnosis. Um, uh, the average age of onset is in the teens. Um, and uh, with some people having an onset in early childhood, other people having an onset later, um, uh, for many people, they may have some social anxiety for a number of years, uh, but it's not really interfering with their life until a little bit later. So maybe they're shy as young children, but it's not until high school that it starts to interfere with their lives, for example. Um, uh, and then, um, and again, for many people, it, it may be years uh, before they actually, somebody tells them that they have social anxiety disorder or maybe never for a lot of people. And so it's interesting you were saying that many people develop the disorder or maybe find out that they have the disorder in, in their teen years. Is there something that teens can do to help prevent it from having that chronic course into adulthood? Is there anything that maybe parents or teachers can encourage socially, socially anxious teens to do to help combat this? Yeah, well, uh, using some of the treatment strategies um, 
that are used to treat social anxiety can also be effective for preventing it from getting worse. So there are a few uh, evidence-based strategies, strategies that have been shown to work. Um, one of them is uh, uh, involves changing thinking. So we call these cognitive strategies or cognitive therapy. Um, and this involves encouraging people to question their thoughts. A lot of us assume that our thoughts are facts. You know, when we have a thought that others are going to judge us and it's going to be a disaster if that happens, we just assume it's true. We want people instead to question those thoughts. Um, you know, the main difference or a main difference between people who experience a lot of social anxiety and people who don't is not so much whether they're how likely they are to be judged by others, but rather their beliefs about how lucky, likely they are to be judged by others. Um, the reality is we're all judged by others at different times. And, and some people um, see that as more dangerous or more threatening uh, than others do potentially. So we want people to question those thoughts, to ask themselves questions like, do people really care about how I look as much as I think they care? Do they really care about how I pronounce that word as much as I th think they care? Do they... Um, you know, if, if I'm boring in a conversation, do people really care as much as it feels like they care? Uh, we want people to ask the question, um, uh, are my self-assessments accurate? Are they objective? Am I being overly critical of myself? Are there other ways that um, I could, is there any evidence that maybe other people are not as critical of me as I am of myself? Um, we would ask the question, uh, I encourage people to ask the question, well, what if somebody does judge me negatively? Is it worth rearranging my whole life to prevent that possibility from, from coming true? Um, or is it possible that even if it did come true, I could cope with that? It wouldn't, it wouldn't be the end of the world. It might encourage people to ask themselves the question, is it possible for everyone to like me? You know, we, we know that one of the things that makes us likable to someone else is how similar they are to us. You know, if, if some, if we if, if I love sports, then I'm going to like other people a little bit more who like sports. Um, if I like art, then I'm going to be a little bit more attracted to people who like art. So um, that's uh, that's sort of a well-established fact in, in the social psychology research literature that we tend to be attracted to people who are similar to us. So what that means is that the very things that make us likable to some people are going to make us less likable to others, which kind of means that it's impossible to be liked by everybody. I might ask the person the question, can you think of anybody who's liked by everybody? Um, and most people can't, you know, that, that even uh, sometimes I once had somebody scream out, Mother Teresa, uh, when I asked that question to a group I was teaching. And, um, well, Mother Teresa, a lot of people like Mother Teresa, but there are at least two books that are, are quite negative um, about Mother Teresa. So not everybody liked Mother Teresa. So... Um, you know, I might ask the client, you know, if Mother Teresa isn't liked by everybody, what are the chances that you're going to be or I'm going to be? So, so that's one strategy is really getting people to challenge their thoughts, to, to look at things from multiple perspectives, not just that one anxious perspective. Another very powerful tool is to do the things that make you anxious. We call this exposure therapy or exposure. So people who... We, we know that the most powerful way to overcome any fear is to do the things that make you afraid. Uh, if you're afraid of dogs, the best thing you can do is to be around dogs and you won't be afraid of them uh, if, you do, if you do that enough. And it's the same with social situations, practicing public speaking. Um, I mentioned earlier that that 
that was one, probably the main way that I became more comfortable public speaking is just doing it over and over again. Um, so whatever it is people are afraid of doing, we, we come up with a, a list of situations and we come up with a way for them to do that exposure in a gradual, systematic, um, controlled kind of way that feels manageable. It's anxiety provoking, but not overwhelming. Um, and people find that it gets easier over time. Um, there are other strategies that people can use for social anxiety disorders. So there is evidence supporting medications and they're the same medications that work for other anxiety problems and depression uh, can be useful for social anxiety as well. The SSRIs, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, um, drugs like um, paroxetine, which is Paxil, um, uh, sertraline, which is Zoloft, for example. Um, and there's some other medications as well. Uh, and then lastly, there, there's um, well, a couple of other things I'll mention. One is uh, social skills training. So most people with social anxiety actually have really good social skills. Um, but uh, like anything, if, you're not, if you don't practice doing something, you're not going to be as good at it. So if you, don't, if you haven't driven much, you're not going to be a great driver. So if you haven't given lots of presentations you're not going to be a great presenter. So one of the things we may do is help people to build up those skills as well by teaching them specifically uh, how to be most effective in, in that situation, whether it's public speaking or being assertive or making better eye contact. Um, so that, that may be included in the treatment. Um, and then lastly, I'll mention mindfulness and acceptance-based strategies. Um, so a lot of people with social anxiety try to control their symptoms. They, they're trying to not blush and not sweat and not shake in front of others. And we know that the more that people try to control their emotions, um, the, the more uh, distressing those emotions are. So mindfulness-based treatments encourage pe people to be aware of their experiences, um, to allow those experiences to happen, to focus on them, to be in the present um, without trying to control them, without evaluating those experiences. So it's not good or bad that you're anxious. It just is. Um, so that's the stance we encourage people to take. And uh, that seems to be uh, useful as well for social anxiety. Is, is, uh, and mindfulness-based treatments do overlap with exposure, for example, and even with cognitive strategies um, uh, in different ways. Um, but uh, those, are, those are some of the main, the main approaches to... Uh, uh, treating social anxiety and, and preventing it as well. So if someone's got a child who's really anxious, um, uh, I might encourage them to encourage their child to do the things that make them anxious. And with kids, we might even use little rewards to uh, reinforce those kinds of uh, behaviors. We don't, want, we don't want to force anyone to do anything. That's That kind of exposure isn't useful if people are forced to do it. So we need to find ways to encourage people to do it and reinforce it and, and, uh, uh, and, and ultimately the, the reduction in fear will be re very reinforcing as well. Wow. So it sounds like there are actually lots of different ways that the social anxiety disorder can be treated or targeted. And one thing I really heard from you is this idea of exposure. And at first, when you started talking about it, I even felt a bit anxious hearing your response because I was imagining someone let's say with a public speaking fear, being forced to talk in front of a group of 500 people to get over their fear. But I also heard you say, no, it's more of this like gradual way of exposing folks to their feared 
stimulus or their feared experience. So maybe I'm just thinking off the top of my head, maybe it, it would involve doing a presentation to just a couple people. And then maybe if someone's comfortable with that, maybe it would be a group of five or 10 and they can kind of build up their muscle. Yeah. So, um, and, and there's different things that we can do to, to um, build up that muscle. So the example you, you gave is increasing the number of people present. Um, uh, but we can also in, uh, increase the, the difficulty of the topic. So some topics may be easier for other people. We can, we can start off virtually and then go, go to um, live. We could start off audio only and then go to video and then go to live. Um, we can have people talk to people who they know well and then present to strangers um, if that's more difficult for them. So um, there's lots of different things we can vary. And again, we would, it's sort of like being in school. If you had to go right from first grade to 12th grade, uh, that would be really, really difficult. Um, but the way school works is you're always doing things that just are just a little bit more difficult than what you were doing before. So it's manageable for most people. And it's the same with exposure therapy. Um, every step is just a small step. So by the time you get to those really high steps on your list, it's just a small step from the step before that you were doing. Um, I also want to mention, though, there's there's also a risk of going too slowly. You know, if you take steps too gradually, you just won't see changes uh, that quickly and, and you'll lose motivation. So I encourage people to take steps as quickly as they're willing to. So part of this is a, a willingness to be anxious. It's sort of like diving into a pool. If you do it quickly, you'll get used to it much more quickly, um, but it'll hurt a little bit more. Um, you, you'll feel more cold um, or in this case, more anxious. Um, if you get into the pool more gradually, it's going to take you longer to get used to it, um, but you won't get as anxious along the way. So that's the, that's the trade-off. Um, uh, and different people are different. Some people prefer to just make changes quickly. And if they experience more anxiety along the way, so be it. Uh, other people prefer, even if it takes you know months or years to get over the problem, they prefer to take steps very, very gradually. So, so that's, that's a decision that, that people need to make. You know, as you were speaking there too, I was thinking about how if social anxiety did co-occur with other disorders, like let's say depression, I'm guessing doing that sort of gradual exposure process would probably make people feel like a sense of accomplishment or mastery. And it would probably help with something like depression. Is that right? Yeah, well, a lot of people who have both social anxiety and depression, their depression is secondary to the social anxiety. So they're depressed because they're socially isolated because they can't do things because of their anxiety. Um, so working on the social anxiety does lead to changes in the, in the depression. Um, so I think it's a couple of things. I think it can lead to just a sense of mastery and confidence that you you mastered this thing and that makes you feel better about yourself. But I think part of it is also as you become less socially anxious, you start doing more. And as you start doing more, interacting with others, um, that, that in itself uh, kind of is a treatment for depression as well. It's getting people more, helping people to become more active and engaging with people and getting social support and those sorts of things.
So we mentioned depression, and I'm just curious: does social anxiety tend to co-occur with any other disorders or mental health problems? The experience of social anxiety occurs with just about every mental health problem.、Um, so,、uh, and I'm talking about anxiety, not social anxiety disorder necessarily. So, social anxiety that people with obsessive compulsive disorder who might be washing their hands excessively or checking excessively may be anxious about people noticing that. Um, but there, we would just call that social anxiety sort of feature of the social anxiety. Sorry, of the OCD, we wouldn't give a separate diagnosis of social anxiety disorder.、Um, for social anxiety disorder to be diagnosed, the social anxiety has to have a bit of a life of its own, so that even if the other problem was gone, there'd still be social anxiety left.、Um, so, if my OCD is focused on washing and checking. But my social anxiety is focused on being boring. I'm worried that people will think I'm boring when I when I'm speaking to them. Those are really two separate problems.、Um, so social anxiety disorder can be diagnosed along with、uh, again just about any kind of problem. It's it's a it's a common co-occurring problem in depression, but it's also commonly co-occurring in other anxiety-based problems.、Um, there's a relationship between social anxiety disorder and substance use. Uh, often the social anxiety disorder begins first, and you know we all know that alcohol is one way of taking the edge off when we're anxious.、Um, so、uh, there is evidence that、uh, people will、uh, sometimes use、uh, alcohol as a way of managing their social anxiety. So those are just some examples of、uh, um, sort of co-occurrence、uh, co-occurrences that are common. Okay, that's really interesting. I really like that idea of. You know, if you treated the other disorders, social anxiety disorder would sort of still have to be there. And you said have a life of its own, and I think that makes a lot of sense. And we touched on this so briefly in the beginning, but I did want to circle back. Why might some people develop social anxiety disorder and others don't?、Um, so there's a number of different factors. So one is. Uh, biology, so people's genetics、uh, seems to make a difference. So some of these traits, like、um, uh, sort of a, a more introverted temperament,、uh, tend to be moderately heritable. So、um, so that's that's one factor.、Um, there are other things、uh, in the brain. There are certain neurotransmitters like serotonin and, and dopamine that may have a role in in、uh, social anxiety as well. Um, but a lot of it is also our learning. So some people, for some people, social anxiety may be reinforced in the family. So some parents may tell tell their children that it's very important to make a good impression. So you know, make sure that you're behaving this way or that way, or people won't like you.、Um, and if you get that message over and over again, that message may affect some. Some affect everybody in the same way, but it might affect some kids in in, in a way of where it increases social anxiety. Um, negative experiences can make a difference. So, being teased or bullied, for example, having these sort of traumatic kind of social experiences、um, can can trigger or or help to worsen social anxiety.、Um, watching other people be afraid. So, modeling we call that.、Uh, so, we know that kids, if they grow up、uh, in a home around others who are anxious,、uh, some of that anxiety may. Rub off. People will learn to avoid situations by watching other people avoid them. For example, so it's really a mix of our、um, our biology and our experiences,、uh, our learning that、uh, leads to this kind of problem. My last question for you, Doctor Anthony, is: 
How can we support a loved one with social anxiety? We know that social support is important for uh, for people generally. So what we don't want to do is get in the habit where we're getting frustrated with people, we're getting angry with them, we're pressuring them to do things. We also know that if somebody is ambivalent about making a change, the more you pressure them to make the change, the less likely they are to do it often. Um, so that's not a helpful strategy. Um, so what, what can be strategy or what can be helpful? So, um, if, if the person is open to suggestions, which they may or may not want from you, um, uh, but if they are open to that, um, talking about exposure, encouraging people to do the things that make them anxious, um, finding ways to reinforce it. So it might be, um, you know, I know, I know you don't want to go to this, gathering this afternoon um it's important you know it's really important to me though that you give it a try and how about if we go to this gathering this afternoon we'll we'll go out to uh, see that movie that you wanted to see or, or something like that um so um so you, yeah using reinforcement um uh, empathy really acknowledging how difficult this is for the individual um you know for them this is this is it feels dangerous um uh, so um, acknowledging that, reflecting back to the person what you're hearing from them, letting them know you understand. Um, those are all things that you can do. There are books out there you can recommend um, to people uh, if they're open to that. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll mention mine, for example. Um, I have two books. One is called The Shyness and Social Anxiety Workbook, uh, which is now out in the third edition that came out in 2017. Um, but I have another book that's a free download. Um, it's it's shorter, it's older, but it describes the same basic strategies for the most part. It's called 10 Simple Solutions to Shyness. It's a little book. It's a good book for people who don't like to read. Um, it's only about 100 pages, and it's kind of small form factor. And people can find that on my website. If you go to Martin Anthony. Dot com. Uh, it's M-A-R-T-I-N-A-N-T-O-N-Y.com. There's no H in Antony. Uh, click on, I think it's publications and then downloads. Um, you will see that and a few other books that you can download for free as PDFs. And I'll make sure to put um, the links to Dr. Antony's uh, books in the show notes of this episode. All right, Dr. Anthony, thank you so much for your time. I learned so much and I hope our listeners did too. Thank you for fighting any social anxiety you might have felt being on the podcast today. And I wish you all the best. Thank you very much. Uh, have a great rest of your day. You too. And that was today's episode. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was hosted by Bev Catherine and produced by Yuri Hladio. Podcasting isn't free. Consider supporting the podcast by becoming a patron on patreon.com. You'll get early access to episodes and other exclusive content. You can find us on patreon.com slash stop psychoanalyzing me. Until next time. Mm-hmm.